All right, well, good evening to our study and discussion team. And I want to begin with an illustration this evening. And there's an expression out there, you may have heard it. It says, well begun is half Well begun is half Well, it's a, a very interesting phrase and motto. I, I have my own perception of what that means or what it should mean. But in reading it, it says the idiomatic expression, well begun is half done, means when you start a project well, it is easier to complete the project. Once you begin executing a project well, you do not need to exert much energy into finishing it. When a task is started excellently, it will have a successful end. Well, I suppose there's some truth to that, but that's not at all what I'm thinking. When it says, well begun is half done, I'm thinking, well, it's not done until we finish well. And I think if we look at the book of Kings, 2 Kings, we're going to see that's the model. Tonight, we're going to look at Amaziah. He began well, as did his father Jehoash. But well begun is only half done if they don't finish fully, completely, and they don't finish well. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, and we're in chapter 14, and we're not going to get very far in 2 Kings chapter 14, but we are going to get a little farther in 2 Chronicles. Because there's a load of details in Second Chronicles about Amaziah that we need to bring in here. Well, I want to do the review just so that we catch up to one another. Uh, the review of Second Kings, the last part of it, you remember Jehoash, he ended up doing evil in the sight of the Lord, even though he began well. He was the one that visited Elisha on his deathbed and began to weep, but we said those were crocodile tears. Jehoash, when he was asked to shoot the arrows for victory, the Lord's victory, he fails to shoot more than three. Well, then we saw Elisha was buried. The last mention of Elisha per se and the last miracle, per se, until a dead man was hastily uh, placed in the same tomb as Elisha and came back to life. And yet, there's a passage in here that talks about the Lord having compassion on Israel, even though they are not doing what is right before his eyes. And so we said last time that what the lesson we learned is that, yes, God is disciplining them, but he is not destroying them. That's his compassion, not to destroy them. And Haziel, he continued to oppress them until God steps in and intervenes and raised up a deliverer, a 
which I believe was Assyria, which is going to be in power more and more until they take the northern kingdom into captivity. Well, Haziel dies, and Jehoash begins to flex his muscles and begins to have victories, but because he only shot three arrows, he only had three victories. Well, I want to just read an introduction of chapter 14 and 15. Someone writes this. This section, this upcoming section, chapter 14 and 15, quickly surveys the kings and selected events of the northern and southern kingdoms from 796 to 735. In contrast to the previous 19 chapters, which narrated 90, 90 years of history, with a concentration on the ministries of Elijah and Elisha during the final 65 years of that period, 62 years are covered in these two chapters. The previous section concluded with a shadow of hope, a ray of hope. Officially sanctioned Baal worship had been eradicated in both Israel and Judah. The temple of the Lord in Jerusalem had been repaired, and the Syrian threat to Israel had been overcome. However, this section, chapter 14 and 15, emphasizes that the fundamental problem still remained. The false religion established by Jeroboam continued in Israel even with the change of royal families. And high places were not removed in Judah, even though there were only good kings there during those years. So I think it's very fitting to say, well begun is only half done. And maybe it is a little easier to accomplish it when you begin well, but it's much more important that you make sure that you finish well. And we're going to learn that from Amaziah this week and next week. So in this seven verses that we're going to look at, we see Amaziah becomes king, verses 1 and 2. Amaziah begins well, and we're going to see some of the things that he did do well. And it says he did right in the sight of the Lord. And then we're going to find out from 2 Chronicles that he hired men and warriors from the northern kingdom to help him out. To which a prophet comes and rebukes him, saying that the Lord is not with the northern kingdom. Why would you choose them? kind of start to see it at this point declining. Now Amaziah, he did have some victory, short-lived victory, but it produces pride and that pride, like with the devil, produces disobedience. And we find out in 2 Chronicles that Amaziah begins unbelievably to worship false gods. After he just had victory over Edom, he adopts their false gods. We then conclude with that, with the Lord's anger burning against him, and make some applications, and then next week we'll finish it. 
But let's just begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And it is really, Lord, nothing new that we haven't heard before, many of us in church for many, many years. We've heard sermons on finishing well. What we see in the book of Kings, those who begin well don't finish well. Let us not be numbered among them. Let us be numbered among the faithful that actually, Lord, grow in our fervency and service for you to the day that you take us home. And Father, we'll thank you for these lessons that we learned from even Amaziah. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin then in verse 1. We're going to find out that Amaziah becomes king. And Amaziah is, as you see here, from the southern kingdom. So we were talking about the, the Joash from the northern kingdom, but now we're talking about the Jehoash from the southern kingdom. And his son, Amaziah, becomes king. We actually saw him, his name mentioned back in chapter 12. And when he mentioned the death of his father by being murdered, it said, and Amaziah, his son, king. But we're not picking it up now until chapter 14. And so the detailed acts are going to be mentioned of him. Now, not all of them, but the ones that the, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand. Well, verse 1 reads this way then. In the second year of Joash, son of Joahaz, or Jehoahaz, depending on which one's the nickname, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, southern kingdom, became king. So if you look at these two, Amaziah becomes king um, a little bit later than Joash. Joash is in his second year, and we know about Joash, we discussed about Joash, he's the one that does not pull back more than three shots of the arrow, but now we're going to move to the southern kingdom. And it's going to begin in 796, where Joash began in 798 B.C. And then it tells us in verse 2, it says that Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So that's a pretty good reign. There's some kings that don't reign long at all, but, but he is. And again, just because they reign long doesn't mean that they were necessarily good kings. Um, just how the Lord orchestrated it in his sovereignty. Um, but this, this is a, a lengthy time compared to some of the other kings. Now, in verse 3, we, we have Amaziah begins well. This is where we begin to see that he did well. He began well. You know, that was like uh, uh, Joash uh, of the southern kingdom uh, began well when Jehoiada was alive. But as soon as Jehoiada was removed, then he began to go downhill. Well, he begins well. Amaziah, the son of Jehoahaz, 
he, he begins well. Look at verse 3. He did right in the sight of the Lord. So again, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't like just the author's opinion. Hey, let's make it a good novel. You know, let's make it a good novel rather than a bad novel. No, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in the Lord's eyes, he did well. But now, all of a sudden, we have these caveats. We have this uh, qualifying statement. Yet, uh-oh, yet, not like David, his father. And of course, David wasn't his immediate father, but that's the way that they would talk, uh, meaning his, that he was uh, David's offspring down through that line. So he did write in the sight of the Lord, but not like David, who followed the Lord wholeheartedly and did all that the Lord commanded. And that was the definition of a man after God's own heart. Served the Lord wholeheartedly and did the Lord's will. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'll pick it up a little later. It goes on to say he did according to all that Joash, his father, had done. Well, that's not saying a whole lot, because he began, well, as long as Jehoiada the priest was alive. And then afterwards, he began to go down that slippery slope, and even uh, allowing the worship of false gods. We find another familiar verse, and, and I don't think the redundancy is a problem. I think the redundancy is just as important. Reading, you go, oh my word, not again, not again. Verse 4 Only, even though we did right, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So these high places were these, these hills where the nations had built their shrines and places of worship to their false gods. Now, what we said before was when Israel would come in and they would conquer that nation and they would defeat them, if they were godly, they'd get rid of all of their high places, the, the nations, and it was not uncommon for them to worship on a high place as long as they were worshiping Yahweh. But that's not what's happening here. They didn't take it away. They didn't remove sin. They didn't remove idolatry. You've got to do that over and over. And the result is when the leader doesn't take sin out, when the leader doesn't lead spiritually, the people follow. It says the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, and this would be to the false gods. So we still have that problem. We've heard this almost with every king. In fact, it was Solomon that started, didn't remove the high places. What we're going to see, which is unbelievable, and I've already mentioned it, we're going to see Amaziah, even though defeating the Edomites, is going to then adopt the Edomites' gods. So by not removing sin, you're opening up the door for more sin. Well, how is it that he did it right? Well, look at verse 5, if you will. Verse 5. He says, now it came about, as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand, that he killed his servants who had slain the king, his 
So if you're you're thinking about that, we're 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 looking at in fact I'll ask you to turn back there. Turn back to Second Kings chapter twelve, verses twenty to twenty-one. Now as a result of, of him disobeying the Lord, uh, he was murdered. Nevertheless, justice had to be done. Amaziah coming into his own right, even though he was twenty-five, he is going to bring justice to his father's murderer. In 2 Kings 12, 20, it says his servants, that's uh, Jehoahaz's servants, or Joash, his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash at the house of Milo as he was going down to Philip. For Jazakar, the son of Shimea, and Jehazab, Jehuzabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, became king in his place. So the first thing his son does is goes and gets those murderers. And then, if you will, look at verse 6. But the sons of the slayers did not put to death, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, as the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the sons, nor the sons be put to death for the fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. And this is, this is coming from Deuteronomy 24.16, and also from Ezekiel. And the law said this almost verbatim, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall the sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And this is God's justice. Uh, there was the idea that if the, if the father chews on a grape that is bad, the son is going to have an upset stomach. Well, the idea is that that son is going to be punished. But that's not the case. God makes it very clear it's the soul that sins that will be punished. It's the soul that sins that will die. And here, we see Amaziah not blaming the sons for the evil committed by their fathers. Now, they're We've also talked about and have seen kings that have killed the sons, too. Because many times what usually happens is they will retaliate. They look for a scheme. But the law, the law says don't do it. And Amaziah didn't do it. A very bold thing, a very obedient thing to do. Well, that's about as far as we're going to really go with 2 Kings. We'll come back to verse 7. But now I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Because we're going to fill in a whole bunch of details. So we start good. But I think what we're going to see now is the downward spiral. Beginning slowly at first, but then becoming increasingly worse. 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Now it begins in verse 1. 
but it doesn't get good or it doesn't get into the details, the extra details until verse 5. So chapter 25, 2 Chronicles, beginning in verse 5. And this is going to go to verse 10. Now it says, Moreover, Amaziah assembled Judah and appointed them according to their father's households under commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds throughout Judah and Benjamin. And he took a census of those from 20 years old and upward and found them to be 300,000 choice men, able to go to war and handle spear and shield. So he's building a military, which is a good thing. And he takes a census, and we know that there's times in the Bible when God commands people to take a census. We also know the time when David took a census and was punished. David was doing it from a point of view of perhaps pride, let's see how much I have. Anyway, the Lord was angry at him, and he confessed that sin. So we can't say that consensus is all across the board, are evil. They're, they're not. Uh, they're in Numbers chapter 1, um, hence the name, Numbers, the Lord tells them to take a census. So he's taking a census here of how many able-bodied, old enough men to, to fight at the age 20, starting at the age 20. And he comes up with 300,000. Now that's not bad. And as we're thinking of numbers, we're thinking that's pretty good. But that has nothing to compare to Jehoshaphat's one million, which tells us the southern kingdom has dwindled. The southern kingdom has declined. Okay, so he's a good king. And he's going to try to build it up. 300,000 isn't bad, but probably isn't going to be enough against a whole lot of these other superpower nations. So what does he decide to do? He decides to hire warriors from the northern kingdom. First of all, I, I kind of have a little reaction to that. At least I did. Like, why would you trust them? You know, they're always battling against you. But there's a spiritual reason too why he was wrong. Verse six it says he hired also one hundred thousand valiant warriors out of Israel for 100 talents of silver. So he decides to hire them and he, he's going to have them help. So these are good warriors and if they get into a battle, these are probably going to be like on the front line um, because probably they're good and they <laughs> don't care about sparing guys from the northern kingdom. But anyway, yeah, the idea is is He's trusting not in the Lord, but he's trusting in the northern kingdom, which has separated itself from Jerusalem and the place of worship. Well, the talents that he or the talent that he gave them uh, was of silver, and he gave it to the king. He didn't give it to them. That's what I think. But for one hundred talents of silver, that turns out to be. You know how much that turns out to be? Three point three four tons of silver. Wow. Equaling in today's value about three 
million dollars. So this is how he decided to build up his military. Until verse 7. But a man of God came to him saying, of course the man of God is a prophet. We don't know who he is. He's unknown. He's certainly not Elisha. He says, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. For the Lord is not with Israel, nor with any of the sons of Ephraim. And he comes with the explanation, why would you again have an alliance with those who don't worship the Lord sincerely? They're worshiping the false calf, you know, the, the false god of the calf, the golden calf. This is what they're doing. And, and you're making an alliance like some of the other kings did, and it never turned out well. So the prophet being sent by the Lord is telling him, don't do this. Well, what's he going to do? Well, most of the time, these kings are going to say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do it. Amaziah does well. It's still somewhat of the beginning. And it's begun well. Well, after reproving, being reproved by him, uh, the prophet says this. This is uh, verse 8. Kind of a warning. But if you do go, do it. Be strong for the battle. Now this doesn't mean, well, if you're going to be disobedient, it's okay. Just, just make sure you're, you're really strong. What he's saying is, look, if you are going to disobey, you better try to be as strong as you can because it's not going to matter. He goes on to say, yet God will bring you down before the enemy. He's a bold prophet telling him the truth. And he says, for God has the power to help and to bring down. And that was a key phrase there. At this point, Amaziah should connect this and say, look, if I want to have victory, I've got to obey the Lord, and then the Lord will help me. But if I don't, the Lord is going to bring me down if I disobey. So he's warned by the prophet. So now Amaziah, you know, probably being a practical man, and you know, you kind of think most every one of us would have said something. What about the money that I gave them? Amaziah, verse 9, said to the man of God, But well, what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, The Lord has much more to give you than this. Now I want to go back. So it is a little unclear whether he distributed it to the troops or if he just gave it to the king. More than likely, he gave it to the king, and the king, you know, downsized it and, and paid them, but not as much. The reason I say that is because we're going to find out here in just a moment when he tells them, I can't use your services, he doesn't take the money, they're not happy. Wait a second, you got money and you didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to fight for it. They got mad. And we'll see that in just a moment. But here's a principle here. Look, even in lost money, even in the mistake of lost money, the priority is not to, to get back all that money. That's not what the Lord's asking you to do. He's not asking you to by hook or by crook or by means to get that money back. The prophet said, the Lord has much more to give you than this. And, and that could include spiritual blessing, which is much more than 
any kind of monetary blessing. Although I did remember when I was in Bible college, we did have a uh, Christian uh, financial counselor come and he did the chapel. He made a comment, and he made it more than once, and I started to kind of really uh, kind of wonder about this guy. He said, look, money does not bring happiness, but I would rather be rich and miserable than poor and miserable. That's what he would say. And I guess there's probably some wisdom in that, but he kept saying it, making you think almost, well, maybe he is miserable, but he's still trying to get rich. <laughs> well, that just doesn't work with the Lord. The, the, the Lord uh, is the one who can give you riches. Look at Solomon. But the Lord gives you spiritual blessings. So this is the wisdom that came from the prophet who knew God, understood God. Verse 10. Well, then Amaziah, he did well. He dismissed them. He obeyed. The troops which came to him from Ephraim go home so that their anger burned against Judah, and they returned home in fierce anger. So, you know, I'm not sure why they got angry. Either they were bloodthirsty and they wanted to kill, or they didn't really get the money and probably weren't going to get the money. The king said, well, you didn't do anything for it. I'm not giving you the money. To which they could say, well, you're not doing anything either, and you're getting the money. To which the king would say, off with your head. One guy. <laughs> Because nobody else said another word. Well, that's what we have here, and, and this is going to come to play. Their anger is going to come into play here. So it's already starting, and I have to say this again. The first step was that wrong choice to be in alliance with the northern kingdom. That was the first one. He shouldn't have done that. If he was concerned about God's will and God's favor, in God's law, then he shouldn't have been in alliance with them. But now that he started that, it starts the ball rolling, and there's going to be some consequences, and then it's just going to go downhill from there. Well, we come to this next section, and that is Amaziah's short-lived victory. So let's go to verse 7 now. We'll go to first, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 7, and this will be the last one that we complete from 2 Kings, and then we're going to go over to 2 Chronicles again. And this is what it says. Chapter 14, verse 7 of 2 Kings. He, that's Amaziah, he killed of Edom in the valley of salt 10,000 and took Selah by war of the city and named it Jophiel to this day. So there was a military exploit there. Perhaps the Lord allowed him to do this because he had done some things that were right. However, we're going to see that this is a short-lived victory. But I want to I want to mention a few things about this. First of all, this is a small victory. Just like he had a small army. That's probably why he went after them. Uh, fight somebody your own side. Okay, they're smaller, so I'm small, so I can fight them. And it, it says that the, the numbers that were killed were 10,000. But now, uh, 
200 years prior to that, David had a battle in the same era where he killed 18,000. So Amaziah, doing okay. You know, but it's it's still small beans is what it is. Uh, yet he has a small victory. What's interesting, though, uh, that you find out from Second Chronicles, and so let's turn over there. You find out how he kills them. So 2 Chronicles 25, look at verse 11. And that's going to be the same, verse 11 is the same thing we read in 2 Kings, only then he's going to give more detail. Now, Amaziah strengthened himself and led his people forth and went into the valley of salt and struck down 10,000 of the sons of Seir. Now, I thought he went against Edom. He did. Seir is another name for Edom. And that's where the Valley of Salt is. Now, before we go any further, I do want to show you one thing. And that is, let's look at Edom here. Um, we see Edom at the bottom right-hand corner. It is southeast of the Dead Sea, which is the same place as the Valley of Salt. We're going to see that. Uh, zoom in on there. You can see just the bottom of, of the Dead Sea right there, and that area below it and to the right is the Valley of Salt. There's a picture that's, that's farther away just to show you this is where we are in Israel. There's the Dead Sea, that body of water there within the box, and then the northern body of water is the Sea of Galilee. So the Valley of Salt then, we're looking at we're looking now at a zoomed-in picture of the Dead Sea, and you can see the Valley of Salt is below. The whole area is salt. Uh, it, it's, it's a rugged terrain where there is no water, and it's just salt. Now, of course, it became a wonderful place of commerce for salt, but nevertheless, uh, when I looked at some of the pictures, and I really didn't get a good picture of it, but when I looked at some of the pictures, it looked like some of the breaks over in Power River. It's just up and down and up and down. And that's hard enough to walk. But imagine walking over salt, having salt tasting in your mouth, having it in your pores. Um, it would be terrible. Well, that's where these battles were. And, and David uh, was, had a major victory there. Anyway, this is the Valley of Salt. Now, Salem is to the south and to the east of where the Valley of Salt is. So we conquered this little city there, Sela, and again, they probably didn't have very much military, but he was able to conquer them. Okay, so how did he kill them? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, Look at verse 12. It says, The sons of Judah also captured 10,000 alive. Well, I thought 2 Kings said that he killed them. Well, it's coming. He captured them alive and brought them to the top of the cliff and threw them down from the top of the cliff so that they were all dashed to pieces. So, not necessarily a very humane way 
Uh, that had been, been very terrifying to watch everybody else go over the cliff, and then it's your turn. But what's interesting about this, what cliff did he throw them off of? We don't know for sure, but you know what the area is? First, first I think Kings uh, chapter 14 says that he named that place uh, Jothiel, which later became Petra. Now, Petra is my favorite place that I never got to visit. <laughs> Dave got to visit that. Dave, did they mention anything about people being thrown off the cliff there? No. Oh, okay, all right. So it doesn't say it, but if you're in that area, and he renamed Selah, he they renamed it Jothiel, which means subdued by God, and then later it came to be Petra. You know what Petra is. Petra is these fantastic buildings that are carved out of and into these cliffs. Um, also, too, Petra is one of the places that they think possibly when the tribulation happens, this is going to be where some of Israel goes and is protected. Doesn't say that for sure, but that's really where everybody uh, comes to that place. Where can you go to be protected? Well, you can be protected in Petra because they can't see you. Well, here's just one of the places uh, where it's well, where it's carved on the outside, and you can see the, the red rock there. Um, and it's just a, a beautiful carving. I didn't get to go there uh, when we went to Israel. It was just to Israel. Um, I said. Would there ever be a chance we could go to Petra? And they said, well, you have to go with a different guide. You, the guide has to be licensed to go to, to Jordan. You just can't go over to Jordan. You can't even go over to Jordan by crossing the Jordan River because there's a guy over there with a machine gun. <laughs> so you can't do that. But uh, the guide told me, well, save your shekels, and one day you can go to Jordan. Well, it, it's just incredible and here's, here's kind of one of the inner workings that they carved to this. Uh, there you can see the cliffs. Uh, I, I, by the way, while I was looking up some pictures, I, they, um, you can have, you can be married in Petra. You can, so, I, I don't know, uh, somebody tell Levi and Lizzie that, that they can be married here in Petra. I mean, what a beautiful place. Now, I'm not sure what this was, some sort of a vigil, um, but anyway, uh, you can see the cliffs, how high they were. And then here, let me show you another picture. There's the cliffs from on top. Those people are small. They're like ants. And it says that Amaziah threw them off. Now, we don't know exactly what cliffs they were, but if it was the same area, what and you're going to throw somebody off a cliff. What better cliff than you have right there? By the way, the word Petra in Greek really stands for a cliff like this. Petros, Peter's name, stands for a huge rock that perhaps fell off of the cliff. So when we have that um, quote by Jesus, you are Petros, means you are a rock. But upon this Petra, this cliff, 
something else other than Peter, I will build my church. And I believe it was his statement, uh, the statement that Peter said, you are uh, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think that was the statement that the church was built on. Anyway, so I got to show my favorite place in the whole world that I never had to visit. <laughs> All right, so he wins this war, and in a sense, he really uh, is kind of inhumane about it, but that not the scripture doesn't really say a whole lot about that. But while he is away, the, the mice are a plague. So back in 2 Chronicles, we go, and we're looking at verse 13, and this is what verse 13 says. Okay, hang on one second. That's the wrong scripture there. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 25. I don't know how 14 got in there, but... Alright, so 2 Chronicles 25.13 says, But the troops whom Amaziah sent back from going with him to battle raided the cities of Judah. While he was gone. From Samaria to Beth Haran, and they struck down 3,000 of them and plundered much spoil. So we can start to see this downward trend. We should have never been in alliance with them. Anyway, this is what it caused, and probably part of the discipline of the Lord. So they killed 10,000, but they lost 3,000 here. So it was only a victory of 7,000. Now, just to show you where Beth Haran is, we see Beth Haran here. I have it in the center. Um, I want to point out Aphek. Aphek uh, is a place that's mentioned in 2 Kings. In fact, not only is it mentioned in 2 Kings, but it was Elisha talking to Jehoash. And this is the victory of the Lord. And he only shoots three times. He said, you could have had victory at Aphek. You could have destroyed them. But you're only going to have three victories. So that Aphek there was northwest of Beth Haran. There's a, there's a lower Beth Haran and an upper Beth Haran. Which kind of reminds me of East Morcroft. And West Morkoff, which Morkoff is smaller than Gillette. And we were just talking about this the other day, saying, you know, sometimes it's, oh, no, i got to go out, and i got to do something. And then you remember, hey, this is Gillette, Wyoming. You can get to every place in 15 minutes. Well, Morkoff is, is smaller than that. But they have a left, uh, uh, an east, really, Morkoff, and a west Morkoff. I wonder if there's any kind of beauty uh, going on between the East and the West. Uh, I'm just kidding. But it is true. There is an East and a West, a left and a right. Well, here is Beth Haram then. And, and here, uh, taking a bird's eye view, you see the Dead Sea there. And in that red square, that's the area of where Beth Haram is going to be and also Aphek. Well, these people came down from the northern kingdom, and this is where they um, rampaged and killed 3,000. All right, so now, at this point, 
I'm assuming that Amaziah doesn't know anything about what's happening. But he did have victory that the Lord gave him. Because he was told not to take those warriors from Israel, the northern kingdom. So he's trusting in the Lord. He sees that the Lord's the one that gives victory. And what we read in verses 14 through 16 is unbelievable. This is why well begun is only half done. It doesn't matter what they meant when they first said it. It certainly applies to Second Kings. Now, after Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought the gods of the sons of Seir, the sons of Edom, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. This is just incredible. Now, who were the gods of, of the Edomites? Well, they served many gods, polytheism. But the one god comes to the top, and his name is Kos, or Kaz. He's the god of fertility. And although name, no name of an Edomite deity is given in the Bible, archaeologists know from the inscriptions that the Edomites' principal deity was Kaz. Several Edomite places of worship and cultic figurines have been uncovered. Well, I'd like to show you one of them. And I don't, I don't have a problem making fun of false gods. Because it's not like false gods are going to come and get me. Because they don't exist. So you remember we talked about Asherah, how Asherah looked like Ruth. And you remember Baal, who reminded me of Harpo Marx? Well, we have another one here. Here's Kaz, and this is what they made of him. Um, I guess it's still one. I couldn't come up with a name, so that's your homework for next week. To come up with a good name or caricature for his name of Kaz. I don't know. I don't, it, it's almost as if when they started carving him and sculpturing him, um, there were three guys and they all had three different ideas. Okay, So there's horns and I don't know what that thing is on the top of his head. It almost looks like a handle. Do you, do you swing that guy around? And then it looks like two noses there. Am I, am I right? I mean, there's a nose where it should be, and a, a nose, he put his nose where it should be. And then, of course, the, I guess, are those glasses? Are those spectacles? Well, just like the fake dealers, why, why do they need glasses? Why would a god need glasses? So anyway... That is the god cost. And I don't mean it doesn't say exactly which one he brought, uh, except several of them. This was the principal one. And this is just unbelievable. This, worshiping a false god in Second Kings is the major sin. But there's just something so wrong about this. Two reasons, for sure you already know them, and it will be discussed here. Um, first of all, Amaziah experienced the Lord's victory. So he knows that it's the Lord who was victorious because he was obedient to the prophet. And now all of a sudden he's going to turn his back on God. The second thing is, is that in that day and age, they've always thought that the strongest God is the victor. We 
which of course Yahweh was always as strong as except or he was always strong. But they didn't always win when his people were disobedient. But the nations began to know that. Uh, the, the nations even mentioned that. That's mentioned in Jeremiah. It was the one of the Babylonian captains that told Jeremiah, the reason your guys are going into captivity is because you were disobedient. We know that. So anyway, that's the second one. The victor is always the strongest. And, and he's going he's gonna to let these Edomite gods be the victors, the strong ones. Well, it's amazing that he bowed down before them and burned incense to them. And, you know, you can speculate what the reason was. Maybe the people that were with him, maybe the soldiers said we needed him. Maybe he caved in. I don't know. Or maybe he just plain wicked, sinful. Anyway, look at verse 15. As you might imagine, then the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah. Well, of course it did. And he sent him a prophet. Okay, so we sent a prophet. We all know it's the same prophet. Uh, they're unknown, and that's okay. And he makes the, the point. Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? That, I mean, it couldn't be any more logical than that. Well, how does he respond? Last time, when he was approved by the prophet, he responded correctly. And I just want to say something here as we talk about David. We're not saying David was perfect. David always responded in the right way. Well, what does he say to the prophet? He threatens him. It says, as he was talking with him, the king said to him, Have we appointed you a royal counselor? In other words, are you a counselor? But it's terrible, because he's also saying, What authority do you have to counsel? He's God's spokesman. And as a matter of fact, he was sent as a counselor. And it was above any of the king's counselor because he was a prophet of God, God's spokesman. And then he said to the prophet, stop, stop it, knock it off, cut it out. Why should you be struck down? In other words, that's a threat. Well, true to God's prophets, then the prophet stopped and said, I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. There you go. That's what he said. Look, you can say what you want. I'm, I'm, not, on your, uh, I'm not on your board of administration. I'm higher than that. And, 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 and besides, when I gave you counsel, you're not listening to it, you're going to die. You're going to be destroyed. Well, we're going to stop there. There's more. It's, it's, it's going to go downhill more. We already see that he began well, but the middle is not well at all. So, you know, maybe today, uh, well begun, well middle, and well end. Well, what are some of the applications that we can draw from this? 
And of course, I want to just always acknowledge that, you know, some of these are going to be repetition. We're going to do, that's okay. I mean, that just solidifies the point. But let's first of all go with this idea of finish well. So we are reminded once again from this passage to not only begin well for the Lord, but especially finish well for the Lord. And I'm not so sure that it's easier either. Sometimes it's easy to begin well. You know, so many people begin well. They do projects. They start things. And you know, we as parents, if our if our kids got involved in something, or what did we say? Well, that's fine. But once you get involved, you know, once you start, once you play for that team, whatever, you're not going to quit. We know how hard it's going to be for them, and we know our kids. So we say that to them. So I, signing up is not hard. It's maintaining it and finishing well. That's the hard part. But we look to the Apostle Paul, don't we? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, this is what he said. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This is his last letter, and it's to Timothy. But he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Amen. And that's who we want to be numbered among. As we think of these various things, it's, it's the idea of, seems to me, okay, now that you've started, you, you need to get your second win. Because it does get harder in the long run. You need to be more committed than you were in the very beginning. So commitment to Christ ought to be something that increases so that you finish well. So when we pray tonight, let's pray that the Lord will help us to do that. Sometimes we just kind of coach. Things are going okay, and so we coach. We coach in our spiritual life. You know, we're not we're not sharpening our sword. We're not oiling our armor. We're not maintaining it with prayer. And guess what happens? Bam. But I think, I think we can look at this and we can come up with a couple of things of how to finish well from the life of Amaziah. And the first one is, realize that victory is from the Lord and not ourselves. It's not in the horses, it's not in the military, but victory comes from the Lord. And we need to always remember that. Whatever of spiritual victories we may have, Please, let's not be prideful about it and say, hey, we did that. Because we're going to find out that doesn't work so well for Amaziah. Because now he's proud. Because he killed 10,000. Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, sorry, can't get rid of the synapses. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul begins the armor of God with finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's where the victory is won. Not in ourselves. We must rely upon him, his word, and his strength to obey. That's learning how to finish well. Secondly, 
we have to serve the Lord faithfully. And I might add, wholeheartedly. Many times what we're seeing here is that they served the Lord, did what was right, but it wasn't wholehearted. It wasn't faithfully. And it's said to Amaziah, or about him, you did what was right before the Lord, but not like David. So you can do what's right before the Lord and not necessarily be wholeheartedly devoted to him. You might just happen stamp, stumble across a principle of Scripture, put it in the practice of your heart. Well, that doesn't mean you're following him wholeheartedly, but David did, and that's the difference. We must follow the Lord wholeheartedly like David, not partially like Amaziah. In addition, we must plan on following and serving the Lord all the days of our life, no matter what our situation or circumstance. And I'm reminded of when Paul was preaching, and he talked about David. And he said, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So the idea of being a man after God's own heart means that you're concerned about what God wants, what's in his heart. And of course we have that in his word. But then you're willing to do it. You're willing to carry it out. Now, was David perfect? No. Did David sin? Yes. And we have not only his recorded in scripture, but we have his confession of sin in the book of Psalms. Twice, at least twice. Um, of some of the bigger sins and some of the other sins, there's confession in about them. Well, what's the difference? I thought he was wholehearted. Yes, because then he did what was right in confessing. He did what was right in repenting. He did what was right in going back and serving the Lord. And you know, David really was sorry. His heart was broken too when he, when he sinned against the Lord. Was Amaziah? No. Because he said to the prophet, um, did they take to one of our counselors or administration? I can't remember. Uh, help jog my memory. No, he was not. So uh, he, Amaziah was not ready to turn to the Lord. He wasn't sorry. And so, we, we, this is this whole idea that we have to be committed to wholeheartedly serving him. And it means to do his will. It means to be in his word. You get out of his word, there's a good chance you're going to get out of his will. And by that I mean, not do his will. Not the will that's been revealed in his word. Because we're not in it. But the word itself really does encourage us to do what's right. It puts in our mind what we should do, rather than us putting in our mind everything else other than the Word. If you're not, mem if you're not memorizing and meditating and not thinking on the Word, what are you thinking? Well, the third one is guard against sin and idols. I mean, you get that application from many places in the Bible, but it's still a good principle. It's a necessary principle. We must always guard against sin and even idolatry to put something above God. 
We put something above God, and first, we are committing adultery, we are uh, idolatry, spiritual adultery, and we are sinning. And the moment that we take credit for our victories, we become prideful, and then Proverbs says pride comes before a fall, and we end up entering into sin. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this we're going to see next time from the life of Amaziah. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, there is a wisdom in the repetition of the same principles over and over. Especially when we, all people, with a sinful nature, are prone to repeat it over and over. So we need it said over and over. And Lord, as we think of these things, we we think of finishing well. It's good to be reminded of that again. You know, we should remind ourselves every day of that. Well begun is only half done, meaning that it's only half of it. And if we don't finish well, it, it will have meant nothing. So, Father, help us to be faithful, help us to be committed, help us to be wholeheartedly following you after you and your will, like David was, guard us against sin, Father, and guard us against pride. And we'll thank you for all this, Lord, in Jesus' name.